Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2017 AWP conference in Washington, D.C. The recording features Michael War, Luis Rodriguez, Amy Suzara, and Dagoberto Gill. You will now hear introductions of the panelists. Dagoberto Gill is the author of Before the End, After the Beginning, The Flowers, Woodcuts of Women, Gritos, The Last Known Residence of Mickey Acuna, and The Magic of Blood. He has published widely as well um, in his spare time before becoming an amazingly accomplished writer. He was a union high-rise carpenter for almost two decades. And he now is the executive director of Centro Victoria, a center for Mexican-American literature and culture, <laughs> the University of Houston, Victoria, and is founding editor of the beautiful magazine, Wisache. If you're not familiar with it, you just definitely check it out. Michael War. As book of poetry, include the Armageddon of Funk, Power Lines, a decade of poetry from Chicago's Guild Complex as a co-editor, and We Are All the Black Boy, all published by Tia Chucha Press. Recognition for his writing includes the 2014 Creative Work Fund Award. For those of you who are not familiar, it's a very prestigious um, uh, grant award from the Bay Area. Recognition for his right. Oh, you, I said that already. Sorry, just testing you. Are you all paying attention? Did anybody catch it? Or did you miss it? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, he also received the 2012 Penn Oakland Josephine Miles Award for Excellence in Literature. And he is also the Deputy Director of the um, Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco, which is also a wonderful excuse to come to the Bay Area and visit us. Yes, Bay Area Pride, right over here, right here, right here. Okay, and last but certainly not least, um, Luis Rodriguez is a novelist, memoirist, short story, children's book writer, as well as a community and urban peace activist. So many things. Um, just wrapped up work as a poet laureate of Los Angeles. And again, in all his free time, published 15 books in all genres, um, including the best-selling memoir and one of my transformative favorite books, Always Running La Vida Loca Gang Days in L.A. He is the founding editor of Teatricha Press, now in its 28th year. Wow. And co-founder president of Teatricha's Centro Cultural and Bookstore in the San Fernando Valley. So you can see these folks are working in a lot of areas, and um, I'm excited to hear them speak. And we're going to start with Amy Suzara. Thank you. Hi, everybody. So um, we weren't sure if we're going to have the tech thing, but I want to share. I'm going to start briefly talking while I'm showing you something. Um, so. I thought that if I had the ability to share some of my minutes with some of these youth, that would be one way I would love to share my time. So let's see if it works. And it's not showing up. Maybe I can get some assistance. Okay. Um, I might just... Oh, here we go. Awesome. All right, so I'm just going to play a couple moments of this clip because uh, because I do have some words to share with you and just to kind of bring. So for me, this panel is about breaking open the walls of what this kind of discussion can be and talking about inside and outside. And so this is a one project, an example of a project I was able to be a part of, uh, working with a group called Cal Shakes as a theater artist and then collaborating with 
a group called Asian or called APAL, which was a youth um, is a Oakland-based Southeast Asian youth organization that works with local communities. Um, and they do a festival called May Arts. So this is uh, just a little tiny bit of it. Hopefully it works out. So right now we're at San Antonio Park. Yeah, so our event is uh, APAL May Arts Festival. This is our 18th annual year of showcasing API cultural arts. The youth have been working on it for a while since about January, February. You know, we're going to have spoken word, guerrilla theater, Filipino fan dance, and some more. My name is Amy Suzara, and I am the artist investigator with this project uh, leading the guerrilla theater group. My role has been to, to work with this smaller group within the larger group to bring theater practices um, to help them craft a short a section of plays. We're actually doing three short skits. He's on stage real quick earlier, and he's not really trying to fail school. He's found because he's getting bullied for being gay and hanging out with his boyfriend. Was this the reason behind it all along? Stupid son, why didn't he tell me? He has been, but he's scared that you'll hate him because he's gay. My dad is from Cambodia and my mom is from Laos, and this is my story. All my life, I've been through hell and back. They know that some people in our community are actually going through these problems, and it's not just something that we're doing because, like, we thought it was funny, it's actually like a pretty serious matter. A big objective of this event is for youth to have a lot of fun. To just be out here and be very much themselves and be, be able to show what that looks like. And we're here today because, you know, a lot of folks are being forced to leave Oakland, and especially in this neighborhood. Um, and so we wanted to bring APAL May Arts here to San Antonio Park because, you know, we just want to reclaim space. There's a lot of changes happening in Oakland. Living in Oakland is very difficult as it is, but also coming from families of, again, refugee or war-torn experiences. So I'm Vietnamese and Chinese, but my parents were refugees. Uh, they, I was born in Oakland, and I've lived here all my life. I'm Cambodian and Vietnamese. My mom is Cambodian, and yeah, my grandma and stuff, they escaped from the Khmer Rouge. Okay, so I think that takes away from, oops, don't walk in. Um, a lot of the things I wanted to talk about in words, actually. Um, and so I speak from this intersection of both teaching as, so I teach at De Anza College in Cupertino, um, and uh, it's a community college. I'm full-time now, but I was an adjunct for about 10 years and did all kinds of collaborations over that 10-year period. Excuse me. And um, partnerships like this have been a characteristic of my work in arts education. Um, I also want to talk a tiny bit on creative collaborations that mesh um, teaching as well as performance and theater um, working with different entities. And the main thing I want to say is the roots of my art ultimately are from being an activist. So this panel is called writerism, right? So writerism, or we might have heard artivism. Um, and I want to acknowledge that, you know, I sort of became an act, uh, became an artivist or became a writer more formally, formally because I was compelled to. It was almost an accidental role. Um, I always wanted to write, but I never felt comfortable claiming that because 
it, you know, didn't feel like a job that you're supposed to grow up as, as a Filipino, you know, daughter of immigrants. And when I was, uh, in 2001, I had a experience um, living in the Philippines and volunteering with with people on the U.S. military bases um, and ended up coming back and co-founding an organization that addressed environmental justice, environmental pollution on the military bases. And then at that point, I felt like my voice was necessary to tell the story. So the question to me of this panel is how do we take on the role of writer? And I'll also say as educator because we work inside institutions in both often but also take with us the communities and the issues that we care about often that are part of our own identity and not dilute the messages that we're trying to get across. Um, there's a quote that I'll share from Carlos Bolosan, which is, um, it is only when we have plenty to eat that we begin to understand what freedom means. To us, freedom is not an intangible thing. When we have enough to eat, then we were healthy enough to enjoy what we eat. Then we have the time and ability to read and think and discuss things. So I feel like there's this tension between being a writer and, and, and being able to have a platform to, to communicate our work, but also the, the, the roots of the content that we're often generating. Um, the challenges I found, a couple of challenges, and then I'm going to, the way I want to close this is actually advice. I want to close and you can take my advice or leave it. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to say a couple of, of challenges I faced in both of these worlds. So I'm kind of, for me, it's very reciprocal and I, I can't really separate my work as a teacher, as an artist. One, as an educator, a lot of times I find that the, if you've heard of the article called Presumed Incompetent, about women of color um, in institutions of higher education. A lot of times I feel the, the actual experience of walking into classrooms and being questioned or that feeling as though maybe my knowledge is not valid. And it triggers a lot of, you know, um, internal, you know, insecurities about, you know, what knowledge do I carry? This is not the same knowledge that I, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't see teachers that looked like me, right? So that's one issue is sort of the, 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 that our experience, our subjectivity in classrooms and institutions of educational institutions mirrors and brings up our own personal uh, experiences um, depending on our identity. And for me, an example, a concrete example would be, okay, I recently was teaching Jamaica Kincaid's A Small Place, and we're talking about tourism and colonialism. And often, you know, the students who um, are white um, a lot of times or, or maybe come from more privileged backgrounds or, and, they, and may be less uh, aware of their backgrounds or the, the specificity of their backgrounds will come to me and say, you know, I only can see myself that she's calling me a piece of rubbish. She's calling me an ugly thing. And they're not able to see the perspective of the native or of the, the person in the, the colonized state. And the people, the students of color are seeing themselves as the natives. I'm seeing myself as a native. So here I am in the class teaching a book, and I'm being, I'm also invested in the text I'm teaching. Um, and so this is a challenge that I face. The second challenge is then when I'm creating work, so I'm now shifting more to the collaborations like this, or um, more so in institutions where um, they're lifting my work to the stage. So for example, in theater, um, I find that that if I communicate stories that involve characters of color, people who are Filipino, and I, I either present a difficulty because casting is difficult suddenly, or um, maybe the, maybe someone's afraid that the audience won't like it because theater audiences aren't usually, you know, 
people that look like the people I want to put on stage. So those are two um, challenges. And so to speed up, because I use some of my time with the video, um, I want to move towards like what I see as sort of the core issue and the core kind of like solution, um, and then a few pieces of advice, if you don't mind. Um, so I feel like a lot of it for me uh, is an internal shift, um, a retuning internally, and sort of um, being able to say, okay, I'm going to do it all. I'm going to, especially right now, I don't, I can't waste time. I have to both be inside the box, break the walls open, um, reshape the box, maybe maybe explode the entire box if I need to, right? Create a whole new shape that no one has seen. These are the possibilities, right? I teach inside institutions. I have I depend on on theaters or I depend on publishers, right? But at the same time. Um, I want to question and challenge, how much do I really need them? And the question for those of you who might relate, um, sometimes you might realize that they need you just as much as you need them, right? And so if that's the case, then here's my advice, is one is, you know, um, I actually have a huge list and I won't be able to go over it in my very few couple moments left. But um, I will say, you know, continue to keep guided by and express your intention. So um, I have a mission statement, which is like a weird thing for a poet, probably. And for me, individually, I did that to continue this idea of to create and help others create poetry and theater for social change. And I've been using that as a mantra for myself um, and to kind of brand myself because ultimately it's not even about how many publications or how many things I've put on stage. It's about what I continue to, to carry with all of my work and with the communities I work with. Um, second is to constantly be responsive um, to the needs of, in whether it's in the classroom or in the art, to use every opportunity to talk about what's important right now. Um, three, be don't be afraid to model to be a model. Um, I've always thought of myself as like a model, and I know the time. Um, <laughs> the, uh, as a model, um, somebody that that might represent and be okay to represent. Also, know that that you're not the only one. We want to encourage as many people to represent for all of these identities: women of color, Filipinos, LBD, LBGQ, uh, LBGTQ, um, and people of of all the different identities we represent. Uh, second, uh, the this almost last one is leveraging your positions that you have, whether it's in institutions of education or, or cultural institutions. Um, collaborate, always collaborate, and push the envelope. So this is where I want to close with this, is in the example of casting, insist on those characters. Okay, they say, oh, this is going to be difficult to cast. I insist I'm going to have a Filipino character. I insist I'm going to have a Chinese character, an African-American character. I can't change those characters because it might be easier to cast differently. Um, this is like a, a sort of requires fortitude for yourself. And to me, it's a way to um, work on decolonizing ourselves is to insist on those choices, but also to insist to everybody else around us that they have to adjust towards us. Um, and to often to be to always be true to what it is that you need to communicate. Um, so I'll close with this uh, quote from June Jordan. Uh, Poetry is a political act because it involves telling the truth. And this is ultimately what I think we need to remember because a lot of us are constantly navigating these decisions and feeling pulled between, you know, do it yourself, 
um, do it for the community, but also leveraging these different connections and institutions. Be true to whom, uh, to what you need to say, and for whom you need to say it. Thank you. Thank you, Amy Cesara. Um, for those of you who came in a little bit later, I read the bios at the beginning, so um, we're going to, just to catch you up, we're going to continue on down the line. I, I did want to say thank you, Amy, um, for your words, especially about um, setting an intention. Um, as a good segue, uh, the intention of the participants was that they'd like to be in dialogue with you, so they're keeping their comments a little bit brief so that there'll be ample time to exchange. So be ready to exchange and interact. All right. Um, I have a lot of fortitude, as she mentioned, fortitude. So, so you will interact in the game. And, and if you leave, I'm going to call you out. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. we got to keep it light. There's just too much, too much heavy, too much serious, okay? Um, and I love that you have a vision and a mission. I think everyone at this table has articulated multiple visions and mission statements for their projects and their legacies. So with that, I'm going to bring you up, Dagoberto. Is that okay? Yes, Are you going to stay there? I'm okay. just going to be here. Do it. Do it. That's cool. Cool. Thank you. Hello. Dagoberto Gelt. Does this work? Yeah. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's see. Okay, I guess the best thing for me is just to talk about, I'm here for the magazine I do called Wisache. And in my, my history is, well, you know, I come from, uh, my mother's Mexican, my father's uh, German who spoke Spanish and from East L.A. And both of them not educated. I don't come from an educated family. Um, I don't have, I had no educated friends. I never knew that you could go to college. I mean, you know, you heard of it. Sort of like hearing of the the White House. You knew it existed. And if somebody said, you, do you know what the White House is? You'd say, you know, like, what the fuck? You know, of course I know. But you don't really know anything. I didn't know about college. But I, I did... I went to, you know, Vietnam. I'm a Vietnam generation, and at the time I came up, it was pretty clear I didn't want to go, so I went to junior college and went to a lot of junior colleges, did pretty well in school. I worked really hard, and then when I was done, I had to get a job, <laughs> and I became a construction worker, a carpenter eventually. But meanwhile, something happened. had happened to me, and that's that I fell in love with literature and started reading like a maniac. I had no idea. In those days, and you know, there weren't creative writing programs. However, I think there were a lot more than I was aware. I just did not have any awareness of literature. The, in, in the Chicano world, there was only Luis Valdez. You know, the Teatro Campesino came through town in Santa Barbara, went to school. There were things like that, but Chicano's publishing was rare and unheard of. And I didn't read literary books who read literary magazines. I did not. But as I became an adult and started writing fiction, I learned there were literary magazines. And long story short, I did pretty good. I started publishing. I banged nails. I put stories crazy, I mean, all the time in the, in the mailbox in the morning at 5.30 so I could make it by 6. And I just thought, if anybody knows who John Fonte is, I thought it was like a John Fonte you just mailed. And eventually, somebody would give you, you know, a lot of money. <laughs> and um, But they didn't give me a lot of money, but I did start getting <laughs> published. 
And, and as time went on, I did pretty well. I had my books published by Grove Press, which I thought was amazing. As, as I got inside and upward into the world of literature, Grove Press, which is like the most avant-garde uh, mainstream press or the biggest small press in the U.S., you know, they really didn't know anything about Chicanos uh, or about... L.A. or about the West or about the Southwest. My first book, you know, typically they put a sawato cactus on the cover. You know, I'm, I'm like, I had to tell them, like, well, not really. <laughs> and um, so, okay, so I, and I started feeling kind of lonely. And like, you know, I'm an irritable guy. No, I'm not really. But I did get like... Why isn't there, is it, there's, there's not even an editor here that I can talk to and have to explain why a sawato cactus doesn't belong, <laughs> why you shouldn't put a woman, a flamenco dancer, on a cover of my book? Can I, can't I have somebody like that that would, I could talk to? And you can't, because the, the dominant culture of literature is on the East. It's in New York, pr- principally, and, you know, a little in Boston, and then a few tangents. Um, there was an era of creative writing where creative writing grew in the 70s as, a, as an alternative to the pre, like the beat era was like, if you look at beat era anthologies, most, most poets and writers don't come from schools. They were born someplace. Now when you see anthology, I was born at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. <laughs> And, and that's it. So at some point, <clears throat> I saw the problem that I was having, even with nice editors. And I'm publishing, like, let's just say, I mean, I'm The New Yorker. I actually had to discuss things with The New Yorker that they didn't know. And about Mexican-American culture, Chicanos. It wasn't Mexican. You know, this isn't about a Mexican boy. I had to tell them that in their advertising. No, that's not correct. So <clears throat> my solution, my and I, I say this as an activism, and, and my activism, and the way I see it is twofold. It's, it's true that New York and, and the community that runs it, which is 90, 98%, 99% Anglo wealthy elite, privileged kids, I mean, I want my kids to be privileged. <laughs> I want that. I would have done the same for them, but I, you know, I did my best. Anyway, um, but they don't know, and their interests don't over, overlap with our interests. They don't care. They don't read Luis. They don't read a lot of us. And <clears throat> so I want to educate them, and their attitude about us, by the way, is sort of a that we're simple, that we're gang members or we're maids, and things like that. Not too far off from Hollywood. It isn't far away. One of the reasons I was unique to them and was that all my characters are construction workers, generally speaking. And it was like anybody from, you know, growing up in, in the Southwest and in L.A., everybody... 75% of every Mexican and Chicano is a construction worker. Are you kidding? I mean, I have to explain to you why I'm doing that. It isn't an intellectual decision I made. 
I think I will write uniquely about construction workers who happen to speak Spanish. You know, I mean, really, they think that. So, yes, it's to educate them that we're, we're butchers. We do all kinds of jobs. We, we work in department stores. We do things that aren't just in the fields, you know, with the campesinos. We're not just that. So, yes, it's also that we have quality writers. And if you look at literary magazines in this country, the vast majority of quality literary magazines, especially now, they will put in there, like, let's say they, they publish 30 people. And they'll have, you know, they'll have their black, and they'll have their brown, and they'll have their Asian, but 27 are going to be them. And they'll say, see, we do publish. So we get like four slots a year in their magazines. And they, you know, get a lot. And so it's like, in, in a lot of ways, why should their focus be us? I, I really do see that. And so I say, let us have a magazine that the focus is us. Let us be the controller of what we want to say in terms of literature about us. Let us decide who is good and who is not good. Not what you think by your stereotypes that is about us. The stories, the material, the quality, everything. Let us do this. That's what this is, magazine with such is about. I will say on the other end of it, there's another side, and that's for us, for us to see. I mean, a lot of us, because we don't have a lot, we're really trying to aggressively promote each other. We take everything. And, and we, sometimes we need to say, no, you need to work harder. It needs to be better. And then you can get, you need a good magazine that isn't just what I always use as running metaphors. Look, if you can't run four laps a mile in less than seven minutes, no, you're not on the team. It, it, we can't have that. That's not, a, that's not what we do. And I mean that as a metaphor. Work, I mean, as Luis knows, I mean, it's a lot of work. It isn't just one poem or one story. It's like you got a rejection, write ten more stories. You know, just don't worry about your your stories or your novel until you've written 150, 250 pages. Yes, and maybe not that novel, maybe the second or the third. It isn't that easy. Why should it be? It, it hasn't been easy for anybody. And it is... It isn't also about what school you go to. It is, I don't want, in this magazine, it is, I don't want to even know where you went to school or if you did. Um, so that's what I do. That's what Wisache is. Is a Wisache, I would say, is I was 50% from the, the, the American West, which is Mex, Mexican-American centric. So half the magazine is going to be somebody from Tucson, from Phoenix, from Albuquerque, from El Paso, from San Antonio, from L.A., from San Francisco. But of course, like the New Yorker, we'll publish somebody else here and there. 
We do that. We always have a couple of Anglos, and we do all these things. Because I like that. My favorite Chicano writer is Dostoevsky. I like that kind of stuff. I have no problem with any of it, but this is about us. There are other magazines out there. There's like maybe a thousand. <laughs> so don't worry, you didn't get. You can't be in my in our magazine because you've got like 999 more. We have one, and where we, the editor, me, look for us. That's new. We look for good stuff by us, about us, for us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dagoberto Gill. Not just that. We're not just that. I love what you said about being born as a writer in an era or a movement or a place. That's a really important thing to um, inform people about. Next, we're going to hear from my Bay Area buddy, Michael War. Thank you. Give me a two-minute warning, okay? Okay. <clears throat> Hello. Thank you all for being here. Uh, this, by the way, is my most recent book. This is um, of poetry and protest from Emmett Till to Trayvon Martin, and it was published last summer by Norton. And when, when I appeared on Michael Krasny's um, forum on NPR uh, for this book, he began the interview um, by referring to my introduction in the book. And it was a reference to me calling the book a tool. And um, he, um, I want to just share with you what he was referring to and why he posed that, you know, why he started the interview with that question. And this is the paragraph that I wrote. As a lifetime practitioner in the arts, brandishing creativity, sometimes as a subtle and often blunt instrument, for radical commentary and dreams of sculpting social transformation. I think of this book, book as a singular tool in a toolbox of many tools that will be lifted to help fix what ails America. It is my intention to reflect a universe in which it is impossible for poets and poetry to exist in a social vacuum. Ultimately, there is no protective divide between the acts of the poet and the acts of the society and system in which they create. The frequently automated brutality, unrelenting inequality, and senseless, unjustified, amoral police killings confront and endanger each of us in some way, at some point. This book is as much, is as much a call to action as it is a call to embrace the relevance and humanity of its creative content. So, so Michael um, Krasny, Krasny was referring to that statement, and specifically um, to me referring to the book as a, as, a, as a tool. I don't think I gave him a very good answer in that interview, but what I um, did was surprise, I think, everyone at the station that day by referring to memory. Hey, <laughs> by referring to memory um, as a tool of transfer transformation. And of course, memory is not the only tool, but when our history is forgotten, when our history is um, disappeared and isolated from our current condition, then those acts 
of taking that history away, of taking that memory away, then they become a tool of oppression. And I want to also say that another tool of oppression are lies, are fabrications. Um, this is not new, but Donald Trump did not invent this. You know, this is systematic. Um, it's part of the taking away of history and taking away the lives, um, the value of these of these lives that aren't in the in the mainstream. Um, recently, the woman who made the accusations against Emmett Till, it was revealed over 50 years later that that was a lie. And today. What are we not hearing about? We are not hearing about police killings very much in the news today. The police killings have not stopped, but the telling of that story in our major media has stopped. And that's why it's really critical for us to tell that story, and that's what this book is, is about. So we have to use every creative tool that is available to us. Sometimes those tools are ready-made and within reach. But often, those they're tools that we have to create from, from, from scratch. So I was reminded of that interview with um, on Forum when I read one of the questions that was posed uh, as we prepared for this panel. And that question was, where is the border between art and the pamphlet? So for me, it's an ever-shifting border. It's an ever-shifting line, I believe that while they are seldom the same thing, that a poem can be a pamphlet and a pamphlet can be a poem. And a personal inflection in my life um, happened to me when I was in high school, and this was a critical moment in my evolution as a poet, that the high school I was at, the um, black history teacher, in that classroom, he gave us an assignment to write an essay on W.E.B. Du Bois's Black Reconstruction in America. Now, I mean, first of all, that's pretty heavy. <laughs> and we were in high school reading that book, but it was the 70s, right? Um, the Black Panthers were passing flyers outside of my junior high school. Um, but the thing is, is that I asked my teacher, could I write my essay as a poem? And he had the sensibility and the consciousness to say yes. And so I wrote an essay. What I wound up writing was both an essay and a poem. So I see of poetry and protest, this book, by the way, it's on the Norton table, so you can check it out. Um, I see of poetry and protest in the tradition of the political pamphlet as well as the anthology of poetry that I stole in junior high, which was called 3,000 Years of Black Poetry. When I stole that book, that's when I was introduced to the poetry of Gwendolyn Brooks, of Nikki Giovanni, of Amiri Baraka, of Victor Hernandez Cruz, and of Anonymous. I mean, this, um, that was a tr another transformative um, thing that happened to me as a kid in high school. So for me, that book, 3,000 Years of Black Poetry, remains a work of art that also spoke to me like a pamphlet that was distributed on the street. Thank you. Thank you, Michael War. Under time and everything. Mm -hmm.
the pressure, Luis. Um, <clears throat> I love what you said about the tool and the call to action, um, especially now more than ever. Our poetry is, for many of us, it's always been a survival mechanism, but it, I just, um, I think it's just so telling. I'm sure it's not a coincidence that we're gathered here of all places right now. So, um, you know, the I know I did the intros already, but I'm, I'm going to uh, in, take a little indulgence and say that for a very long time, I followed this next guy around. I read him. I literally stalked him. I was going to his readings going, will you be my friend? And um, he was always very gracious and very nice. And I, I, I will go out on a limb and say that I think I am one of the products or examples of many different types of examples and products of the work that he has done. Everything from being a fangirl to then being one of his published writers. So um, now I think he's kind of following me around a little bit. But, um, but I have just so much admiration and love for Luis Rodriguez. And so he's nice. So I want to start by saying that if you can, on Saturday, we're going to have a candlelight vigil for free expression in front of the White House. Please come up because we want to challenge. But what we want to challenge, at least I feel what's important, is what Michael and everybody else needs to be addressing, um, the big lies. Because we all know everybody lies, but here's the problem, whether you know it or not, this whole country is built on lies. And I, I'm not saying I don't love my country. It's the only country I know. But that's what made me a writer activist, to fight the big lies over our heads, the big lies of who we are as people, as indigenous people, as a working class, LGBTQ, every lie that has to be challenged. I'm going to speak to you as a native Chicano person, native because my mother's Tarumara. And Tarumara are in the Chihuahua Desert, of Mexico, but they also go into parts of Texas and New Mexico. So when my family went from Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, when I was two, and to the other side, we just went from my land to my land. People don't realize we have tens of thousands of years in this land. They put a wall, and it doesn't change the fact that this is our land. You know what I mean? We're not immigrants. We're migrants. We're not immigrants. We're not can't be, but that's what we are now. And I'm not saying that nobody else belongs here. We all belong here. However, we got here. The one thing that isn't a lie is that now we have to forge a country where everybody feels that they're welcome and accepted and everybody can feel that this is the place in which we align our truths because we're totally disaligned. As a native person, I have to say the whole basic idea of indigenous cosmology, and this is for all native people, Native Americans, other ones across the continent, everywhere in the world, because everybody's got native roots, no matter where you're coming from, is we is to align to nature in accordance with nature. Nature teaches you how to live, teaches you what to be careful about, teaches you about abundance, teaches you about the varieties of humanities and varieties of plants and diversity of life. It teaches you that it's natural. And only society comes in and says, certain people matter. Certain people are valuable. Certain people got all the money. Certain people, you know, are poor and suffering, and some of them might be um, people of color, poor white people, wherever, wherever it might be. So my thing is, the big lie is what made me so hungry and so angry to be a writer. I started off not as a writer. I started off as an activist in the streets. I started off writing and 
getting maced. Uh, in those days, it was maced. Now it's pepper spray. Getting beaten up. I started off in the Chicano movement. The Chicano movement brought me to life. I was a heroin addict. I was in the street. I was homeless. I was dead. Dead in my body, if you can understand that. And the Chicano movement brought me light and ideas and brought me fire. You know what I'm saying? That I could fight something. That I was angry enough to say, there is enough injustice in the world to keep me alive. Because I didn't have that before. And when you're in the streets at that level, you don't care if you live or die. That's why I could challenge everybody. I was telling that Goberto when I was in Murder's Row at 16 years old. Two big guys came up and tried to cut my throat. People said, well, how did you do that? I didn't care if I died. That's what scared them. <laughs> I stood up to them and said, come kill me. I dare you to kill me. Because if you don't, I'm going to kill you. You know? And they got like, whoa, this guy didn't care. I didn't care. That's what made me dangerous. But guess what? I care. And that's what makes me dangerous now. And that's what we have to do as writers. We have to be writers who care, who have enough hunger and enough hunger to go out there and say, we're going to change this world. And we do it through our writing, through our poetry, through our stories, through the journalism that tells the truth. Because truth now, as they say, is on the line. Truth is our battleground now. It's always has been. Michael is right. So I'm, I'm going to try to, I don't know how to do hashtags. I would say, but if I did, it would say, truth is our cause. That's what the writers, that truth is our cause. Hashtag truth is our cause. We need to make this the cause. Because the first thing that fascists do is get rid of the truth. And this is why we have to be, as writers, the truth, our truth, the truth of our stories, our voices, to make sure they all get heard, the diversity of voices. This is what humanity looks like. It looks like so many different things. And yet underneath each one of us, there's a commonality of loss, a commonality of pain, a commonality of, of struggle, a commonality of trying to get over as a human being, and we can all come together at that level. That, to me, is what's important. And that's what we have to fight for as activist writers, wherever that might be. And that, of course, brings me to why I do what I do. I have the Atucha Press for 28 years, which is amazing. Um, some of the Atucha Press people are out in the audience, and, of course, Michael Warren was with us from the beginning. And... We've been doing this, and it's, at, it's now in, it started in Chicago, which I am very grateful to say that I was in Chicago. I lived in Chicago. I got a lot, a lot of support in Chicago. We built a movement, didn't we, Mary? We did a movement there with poetry that also said something. It wasn't just poetry just to do it, to challenge the world, challenge the status quo, challenge ourselves, to say that there's some vision to where we want to go, what we want to do. The poetry slam that came out of there now is all over the world. But the Theatrucha Press... It's also just about um, making sure that those voices and stories don't get lost. The ones that nobody wants to publish but us. You know what I'm saying? Because it's hard to get published in this world, I know. And, um, and so Thea Chucha Press is there. We have a center in the San Fernando Valley called Thea Chucha Center Cultural Bookstore, which if you ever go to San Fernando, come and visit. We're the only bookstore, art gallery, and even film place in the San Fernando Valley, the northeast, the Mexican side of the valley, which is actually Mexican Central American, we're the only place for half a million people. There's no bookstores for them. In the entertainment camp of the world, they can't even go to the movies. There's no movie house there. So we created this place so that this community can have a gathering place. And what happened when Trump got elected, we had a hundred, several hundred people there, pissed off, angry. Some people were crying. Some people said, but we're going to do something. Angry that our families might be broken up. Many of them are going to be deported. Angry of not knowing what to do. One girl, the first girl that spoke, wanted to commit suicide. So I said, no, 
We're going to live to struggle through this. Because our ancestors have been through worse. We've seen worse. Trump ain't nothing. We're something. You know what I'm saying? We are really it. And we're the ones that are going to make it happen. So for me, writer activism is our very life. There is no difference. There's no separation. You can't separate yourself. Put yourself out there as a writer activist. Be alive. Have vision. Have dreams. But also carry them out. Talk. Read. Do everything you got to do. As everybody on this table does. The work that we do keeps us alive. But keeps our communities alive. Keeps this country alive. And that lie that this country was built on will go away. Because this is actually a beautiful country. It's a great country. But not because of the lie. Because of the reality of it. With that, everybody belongs. Everybody's beauty is in their eyes. Everybody's beauty is in the way who they are, the way they really are. Not the way somebody else they says it, they should be. And that's what we're going to take to the period that we're in. We're going to change this world, and we got it within our hands to do. Thank you very much. Uh, I am a working class person, and like... Dago, I worked in that industry. I worked in a steel mill. I learned all those trades before I was a writer. People didn't know I was a writer, uh, and I, I did all that work. And I, but here's what it is: I don't think there's a class divide that's real. I think it's one that's perceived and pushed down. There is no white working class. Anybody that says that is lying. There's one working class. It comes in all colors, comes in all genders, and in all sexual orientations. That's the class that doesn't have to own nothing that controls the big, giant corporations and industries, the ones that have to work to make a living. People are telling white people, you're different. Don't you think those white people who are suffering, who don't get a job, that are trying to say that Trump is going to save them, aren't going through what all the black and brown people and other people are going through? We're in the same boat. I tell people, I tell them, I talk to them as much as I can. We're in the same Titanic, and we're not in the top row, and they still die. We're at the very bottom. We know they died. So let's be clear. There is no white working class. There's one working class in this country, and it comes in all colors. And don't let Trump or anybody else tell you otherwise. You know what I'm saying? Because that's the divide. And that goes back to the start of the country when white people and black people used to be slaves together and used to run away and have rebellions together. And somebody figured out, you know what? We're going to separate them. Blacks are going to be slaves forever, and whites will have some only slaves for a certain time. They'll get out, and then they'll be used as slaves um, how do you say, controllers of the slaves. So this is what I, I would say. Don't let anybody divide the working class. Uh, I guess, you know, that's all true. But I think what we're really talking about, and it's unfortunate, but the, this country is based in racism. It's birth. And um, we haven't extricated ourselves from the two biggest racisms of this country, which are against blacks and against Mexicans. The Mexican one has gone on quite a long time. It's a history that isn't quite as well known, um, but it is, it, it's 200 years of racism about Mexican people, Spanish lands, and James K. Polk, the racist that slave-owning races that took over the land from Mexicans. because, And that relationship hasn't changed. I do find it, when, you, when people say working class in the media, almost invariably they only mean white people. Mm. A Mexican is never working class. He's somehow a Mexican. He never transcends this. 
um, and, and the black working class, black people, yeah, I even did it. Because that isn't, nobody talks about that. You go to union halls. So the bigger problem to me is, is racism. And <clears throat> boy, we could talk a long time. How do you do that? And, you know, I do think as long, as long as we can't be open and have a dialogue about what the problem is, I mean, I'm, now I sound too simplistic, but yeah, I think it's not so much class. I think that the Trump revolt is racist, period. Yeah, I don't think it has anything to do with class. Well, one thing that I think where class does come into play is that we are living in a time where these are issues that we've been talking about for a long time. But historically, things reach a certain point where they have a qualitatively different impact. And so, in many ways, none of it is new. It's been bubbling, and the economy has reached a, a level where uh, people, whenever this happens, people are more open to, to these racist um, tones and ideas, but also to fascistic um, ideas. And the, the point I want to make about class is that um, I think that we are in a period where literally there's an evolving, I think, united front against fascism. I mean, I do think that we have reached a state in, in, in America where people are feeling it, um, where they are becoming concerned about basic democratic rights. And that under those conditions, uh, there is the possibility of this united front. It's temporary. But the fact that the word fascism is even being spoken um, by a section of even the ruling class, uh, I think it's, it's indicative of the state that, 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 that we're in. And I was thinking about this a lot during, during the uh, elections at, at, as well. Um, but I just want to say that this is not in opposition to the point that's being made because the color line, as Deboas called it, you know, I mean, that is the dividing, uh, that's a critical issue in, 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 um, in American history uh, right, right now it, because it's a tool that's used to divide us. Yes, yes. Um, okay, so, oh. Oh, hey, what's up? Hi, did you, did you have a question now? Can I just say something really quickly? I um, I really challenge the idea that you got to have all these college degrees and pay all that damn money, that debt, and, and think that you're going to get anywhere. 
I think maybe the idea of having your own education. But I tell people, if you're going to say you're not going to go to those schools, still educate yourself. Because the problem is people, they don't want to go to school. They're not reading. They're not. No. Learn something. Go out and read. Get a library. Start your own school. I don't care if it's accredited because the accredited schools are the ones that are getting you in trouble. But learn things. That's the key thing for me. I didn't graduate from any college, but I'm learning all the time. I got a library like you wouldn't believe. But I'll tell you one of the reasons. I have two. I have four kids. Two of my sons, I want to talk about real briefly. One went to prison 15 years. Can't get a job. Makes sense. Felonies can't get it. Very hard to get a job. He's been working at it. I got another son that graduated from UCLA, cum laude, whatever that is. I don't know what it is. Really good. Got an English literature degree. People might say that was not too smart, but he loves literature. He loves reading. He can't get a job. So I think education has to be advanced and expanse and change the whole concept of it. Why go to all that depth and you still can't get a job? It's not working. What if we find a way to learn? But I would say for people doing that, learn, 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 regardless of how you set it up. Make sure you really learn. I had mine was to the prior comment, so I feel like finish this one, then I'll return back to it. I really appreciate your question. I just wanted to chime in because I'm. Um, I've worked in school reform um, for a long time and around community schools models, and I currently work for TNTP, the New Teacher Project. And um, I think that now more than ever, writers and artists and people who have that lens and have that experience of that there are alternative educational models that a school, you know, like what you, the, that image, right, of the a son who's struggling because of his prison background and the son is struggling even with a degree, right? So I think more people like us that are in those schools and teaching the professionals in whatever capacity through professional development, like, I don't think that's, it's going to take a while to deconstruct that, to completely destroy it. And the more of us that infiltrate those systems and try to help change them, I mean, that's what I have found to make myself a little less anxious and depressed. So I just think to continue to do that is important. Yeah, and I just want to say that we have to have a multitude of ways of, of educating and raising consciousness and bringing knowledge. Um, I used the example earlier of I, I attended a school with the lowest reading rate in the entire state of California. That school is so bad it doesn't exist anymore here in San Francisco. Um, but I was a Jehovah's Witness, so all we did was read and write uh, and speak. And so I, I graduated with people who could not read and write. I could because of my family. Uh, I've lectured at practically every major university, including the Kennedy School of Government. Uh, you know, I won a National Endowment Award um, for writing. Um, uh, and so the reason I say that is because I was getting my education in a lot of different places. And I often say that when I graduated from high school, that's when my education began. I mean, that's when <laughs> Luis and I met at that, at, at that moment in, in, in Los Angeles at a demonstration. Um, and I think this is a really critical point because we have to come at this where we are educating not just the people that we know individually, but we have the digital technology, we have the ability this this um, this demonstration on Saturday to me it's a classroom as well as a demonstration and so we have to have this multitude of ways of raising consciousness and teaching um, everyone that we come in contact with. I'm going to find.
find a, a savvy way to go to uh, touch this and then somehow go back to the class question because I had something to say, but and I don't want anyone to be depressed. So hopefully we'll have a positive one after that. Um, <laughs> but I think I mean I want to just chime in briefly is that like um, this idea of like do it yourself is kind of like was my last point on my talk that I didn't get to go into as much. But like where are those places where the those outside organizations like sometimes it feels like oh, I don't have this I don't have the funding or whatever uh, friends of mine who are mothers set up a co-op for children to learn Filipino culture and language and like it's a it's like a, practically like a school I mean they stay under the rules or whatever they you know but I mean those kids are coming up knowing more culture than I than than their parents generation you know what I mean and they're gonna like change the world and it's like that to me gives us hope that in addition to or separate from and they they do a whole summer program, and so seeing them start, I was like, man, that's so much extra work, and then watching them grow it to where it's an actual force that, I mean, someone probably is going to want to pay them to do this at some point. So, I mean, back to the do-it-yourself. Um, okay, now the depressing part is sort of back to the... <laughs> I wanted. To, I was thinking about the class question because the first thing that came to my, my mind, the class and race is that when, after Trump got elected, one of the first things that was freaking Filipinos out, a lot of us, is that we would see, like, people we thought, who are relatives or friends of the family who would come out and say all this, like, terrible racist stuff. Even, like, calling each other not American for critiquing and sort of Trump, all these Trump supporters came come out. And one of them I'm thinking about is very, very wealthy, but she, can't, she has a complete rags to riches, like, really rags to riches from the Philippines story. And so I was thinking about how effective the American machine of turning of the of of instilling us with this rags to riches thing, letting people fulfill it, or you know, people actually fulfilling it. But then how this divide and conquer thing, right? And so now my own auntie, who actually I I feel like I could stay with her and all this stuff, I can't like her. Ma she's crazy to me. You know what I mean? So like I can't communicate with her and. Um, you know, for me, it's like we, we within our own groups are looking down upon each other or, you know, that kind of case. And so it's like, and, and it's tied into race because, you know, quick history thing of like Philippines was, was colonized by Spain for 400 years and then the U.S. for 50 years, 100 years, including military presence. And so when Filipinos are here, there's this like ingrained way in which you know, we've been prepped to to look down at the ones who are lower and whether it be class and even though that's where you were before. So I think it's interesting because it's very heightened, like right now where, where people, and I think then it turns back to, you know, maybe, you know, that internal tuning and sort of figuring out like, okay, our own people in our own intimate spaces are exact uh, examples of, you know, this divide and conquer thing. How can we, like, make those conversations happen? And that's a different kind of education, right? Like, for me and my sister, it's like talking to our parents, talking to our closer people. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to touch upon that. It was depressing, so we can change the time. That's right. truth, the truth. Yeah. Hashtag truth is our cause. Yes. <laughs> Other folks, we want to hear from you. What are you thinking about? Don't be depressed. Yes. <laughs> yeah, my name is Moncho. From California, and I was thinking like when I was growing up, I was trying to find different uh, facilities, uh, different avenues, and I knew there was like some community centers. But for me, like uh, I'm getting my MFA and getting everything done, learning all these worlds that I keep going up to it. 
myself, like, it's more, it's really important to create certain programs. If you don't know, find out, ask questions, but feel empowered to do it. Like, uh, I know, like, a lot of my friends went to jail or in jail or came back from jail, and I feel like I want to help them somehow. So I would try to share the poems or whatnot. So I would ask is what um, <clears throat> organizations, you know, I'm, I don't know that much still about it, what organizations or facilities so, so again, let me just start so we can move. Uh, if you go to theachucha.org, T-I-A-C-H-U-C-H-A, you'll find out about all the work that we do. We actually have a big education component. We teach people native indigenous cosmology, the Nahuatl language from Mexico. We teach them Aztec dance, but we also teach them music, art, theater, writing. Creativity, as you mentioned, is the way. I think we have to be imaginative and creative now. I think we have to create our own institutions, but be really imaginative. And um, so that, go to there. And also, if you're interested, go to booth 115 with the Achucha Presses so you can see the books that we do. Um, so you can see even, there's a lot of ways to be creative. Uh, and I also want to say education, I agree with Mike when we talk about the multitudes. I'm not speaking against anybody that tries to go to school, get an MFA. I wouldn't do that. But whatever you do, I know people who have gone to those programs and they come back and tell me, I never want to read another book again. Because they're tired of it. It's like, no, that's, well, that's not the purpose of that. But that's what happens. So whatever you do, like I want to repeat again, don't stop learning. And if you don't go to schools, keep learning anyway, because that's what we need to do. But being creative to me is the really moment in time for us to be imaginative and creative. Uh, yeah, I just want to pick up on that because this, I, the point that you made, for instance, about I'm Not Your Negro is a good example because we, we um, pre-screened that uh, at the, I'm the deputy director of the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco, and we pre-screened that. So this is at an institution, right? This is, uh, it's a little more radical than the other institutions, but it's an institution institution. Um, and the point is, is that it's an example of how those are moments that we have to take advantage of. Uh, we show that film uh, to teach. We show that film to have dialogue. And the dialogue has to move outside of that room, you know, into all these different places that we are. So I just want to say one more thing that I think is related to that. And that is, um, depression is a real thing. But I want to pick up on what uh, Luis was speaking about earlier, that we are going to live. And, you know, we are going to do more than live. And I am actually very positive about a lot that I'm seeing right now. Standing Rock to me is just the best example because there are people out there on that front line. To me, that is an, uh, it's, it's an example of the united front against fascism. There are people on that front line that would not have been there a year ago. And I think that this is an opportunity. I mean, I'm not bragging, but I see a lot of people catching up to things that I've known since I was 17 years old. Analyses that have been out there in writing, in film, in public discourse, but this, many people have not heard that because of the monopoly of discourse and communications in this country. And so we are really at a critical moment that is about transformation. And that's why it's so dangerous. That's why so many people are agitated that you never heard from before. Because we're really talking about power. 
And it's when it gets to this point that transformation becomes inevitable. See, it's this is different. That's it's a different situation. And so because of that, we have an opportunity to make this country what it what it says it's it's supposed to be. And that's scary to a lot of people. But I'm really happy to see it. But it can't be transformed unless we are out there in the streets. Unless we're connecting the writing to the that other activity. Because I consider writing an activity. But you can't transform society unless you're linked in with society. Um, we're, we're, I know we're running out of time, but my thought attached to this is I think a lot of times we find, speaking to the topic of the panel, a lot of times we find ourselves being polite or holding our tongue. And I think this is a time that anger is good, especially through our creative arts. Um, I've been thinking about the uses of anger by Audre Lorde. And, you know, a lot of times people are like, but I can't do this and I can't do that. You're right. The time is now. And, you know, when the when the, the immigration ban happened, I was like, there was something very personal about it. There is something very personal about it. I started picturing my own parents and, like, my mom, you know, she went through some stuff with her paperwork back in the day. And I thought, this, these are reminders that our belonging is tentative. You know, we've all, already, many of us have already felt that way every day. And now we're being reminded that it could be you, it could be you, it could be you. So um, I just want to say, like, t- learning each other's stories, telling stories, narratives, all of the stuff you're talking about, documentation, I think is very, very important right now. And also anger is a strong force. We actually have less than a minute left, so I would like to encourage you to hang out after and talk. But I would just like to, to say that this is fire right here, and this is beautiful. Thank you for coming, and thank you to all of our panelists. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please feel free to visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.